So do you still struggle with keeping Pitbull at bay? Yeah, I do. It's because it's what people expect. So are there situations in particular where you're having to navigate that challenge? Every day. Every single day, no matter what. I can go to yard right now and guarantee somebody probably have an issue or some type of grievance they didn't try to bring to me. Theron is a leader in his community at the Oregon State Penitentiary. He also has a reputation for violence, which is how he earned the nickname Pitbull. As a leader, he's often asked to help resolve conflicts, ones where emotions can run hot. When things start to boil over, Theron's old tendencies toward violence can emerge. He tells me about a time when he was trying to advise a young prisoner, one who was reluctant to change his behavior. That's when the... The aggression almost came out like, man, hold on, dog, tear this up. I mean, do you know what you are you are you trying to really just the, this the avenue you want to go to? But then I had to catch myself. He's just a young dude. He's just a young guy. Just he don't want to be told what you know he do. So I got to make a decision. Let him do what he want to do, and let the cars fall as they may, or put him in his place. But all that requires you to control your emotions. I have to, because in that moment, I got upset. The old me would have probably slapped him right there, but it doesn't solve anything. Because now I'm in the hole for something I didn't even care about. For what? So controlling your emotions has been a big part of your transformation. It's, it's, the, it's the cream. <laughs> it's the crop. Steve has also seen countless examples of prison aggression. That's a classic uh, example of toxic masculinity, I would think. Yeah, they can't. They don't know how to talk it out, I guess. But so when you use the term toxic masculinity, what do you mean? Just uh, trying to puff your chest out and trying to be somebody that you know. I feel like a lot of people were putting on an act. You know, it's it's toxic masculinity because it's it's not willing to step back and admit any of your faults. Not willing to say, okay, I did that. My bad. What's the alternative? Or what does non-toxic masculinity look like? Just being more open to the other person's side, being empathetic to what their needs are. You know, if, you could just, if somebody's over there saying, hey, man, you really hurt my feelings with that, and you say, hey, my bad, I didn't know, I'm sorry. That's something a lot of people in here don't know how to do. If any place can be said to be full of toxic masculinity, it's a men's prison. The culture of prison violence that we explored in our last episode is very much fostered by the masculine norm that allows the open display of pretty much only one emotion, anger. But personal change usually requires us to explore the full range of our emotions. So those who wish to chart a new path in prison must challenge the masculine norm that equates emotional vulnerability with weakness. This is Making Amends. I'm Steve Herbert. I used a rare degree of access to the Oregon State Penitentiary to explore how many prisoners reckon with the past and how they search for a way to atone. In this episode, we'll hear stories of prisoners who recognize that their struggle to be a new person requires them to rethink the masculine codes that structure much of prison life. They recognize that they need to become emotionally vulnerable if they want to become emotionally healthy. Episode 4, 
finding a way to express those emotions. So help me understand why drugs and alcohol were so enticing. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, mean, I ask myself that a lot and uh, I really don't know. I think it's just because it, um, you know, life is painful sometimes, just like normal everyday life is painful and awkward and um, doesn't, isn't always the greatest feeling. And, but when you're high, <laughs> it is, you know, you're always in the greatest feeling. This is Cameron. We met him in our last episode. So I think it was a way for me to deal with just life. And, you know, I was a, I was a super emotional kid but boys aren't supposed to be emotional, you know? So it, I, I think it was a way for me also to just suppress emotion, you know, for a long time, even up into my teenage years, I showed no emotion until I got angry. And then I would just be super angry. But then if like I was in a position uh, where I had to talk about my anger, I would just burst into tears. <laughs> and, uh, you know, getting high was a way to deal with myself and uh, emotion and life and, all that. Cameron's comfort with anger might help explain why he was attracted to a crew when he entered prison. They were what my conception of manhood was, right? They were uh, tattooed, tough, intelligent. You know, you didn't mess with them. They had respect. That's, you know, that's, that's the kind of stuff I was drawn to. As he drifted into the lifestyle of his crew, his attachment to the outside world fell away and his emotional life became more limited. It's painful to think about the people out there, so it's easier to come in here. And uh, this is a very different environment where um, we didn't make it violent. We came into a violent place. And so in order to succeed in here, you have to become violent, and you have to uh, lower your empathy and harden yourself and uh, all these other things. So th these are survival tools in here, you know. One morning in class, Cameron and his classmates talked openly about the potential costs of being vulnerable in prison. Everybody in this place is a badass. Everybody in this place is tough. Everybody in this place is not going to show emotions. Everyone is, most people are faking it, you know, and everybody gets lost in the crowd. Like, everybody want to be tough, and even if you're at a moment of weakness, so to speak, and you would like to express something that's on the top of your chest, you don't find a supportive group of people or a safe space for you to do that, so. And I totally agree, but I feel like uh, to explain that further, because I'm probably one of those guys that's facading around, I kind of just keep like a fake face in my, in, like when I walk in the child and I see Anthony do it a lot too. And I, and I understand why, because we've been locked up so long. So I'm like, I'm just gonna mean mug everybody for the rest of my life. And then if I find somebody that's actually cool, I'll open up. That being said, once I get to know most people in here, I, I really never met like a monster in here. Well, I think it has to do with being hurt. You know, we we walk into with a bunch of people and we put on that face saying, I'm not the one, you know. Like, don't don't hurt me because I'm not the one, you know. You're not the one. Uh, don't mess with one. me. The one who's vulnerable. Yeah. But Cameron realizes that he must become emotionally vulnerable if he wants to travel the path toward atonement. And how much of your own transformation do you think has been about learning to understand and modulate your emotions? 
so that's still that's that's something I'm still working on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the only thing that was okay to express um, in prison, so my whole adult life, because I've been here my whole adult life, is uh, anger. So any emotion tends to come out as anger. So trying to um, regulate that and deconstruct that is is something I'm definitely still working on. Can you give me a for instance? So um, in math class, <laughs> the uh, the other day, um, the professor marked a question on the test wrong. Uh, that was right. The answer was right there, circled, just like he wanted me to do it. And uh, I went up to him and talked to him about it. And uh, he was real dismissive. <laughs> and uh, just, I'll talk, I'll talk to you about it later, right? And I just, anger just surged up in me. And I slammed my, my hand on the table. And uh, when I sat back down and uh, just, I don't, I don't like that feeling because it's, it feels like I don't have control. And uh, so after I calmed down, I just had to think like, why am I feeling like this? And for one, him being dismissive is uh, a real trigger for me because for one, I feel like as a child, I probably didn't get enough attention. So being uh, dismissed triggers that. And then in prison, I, I was uh, affiliated and I had status and, and everything my whole adult life. So people were never dismissive of me. You know, they could love me or hate me, but they, what they weren't is dismissive. So um, going into this new cycle of life and this new, these new patterns, I'm still getting used to, like, people are going to be dismissive of you. You got to get used to it. And uh, so I think really what I'm working on now is finding a way to express those emotions without reverting to anger. Cameron is not the only person struggling with his tendencies toward anger and aggression. Terrence needed some time in prison before he fully understood the role his emotions played in his crime and how he needed to regulate them moving forward. I took a MVC class, which stands for uh, Nonviolent Communication. That class is, allows you to be able to be aware of your emotions, help you to um, articulate your uh, emotions in a way that's healthy instead of a way that's unhealthy. And in the end of the class, we have a mock parole board hearing. And I remember I had to sit in front of them and they're asking me all these questions about why I did this and why I did that. And one of the older guys asked me, he said, uh, why are you in prison? Look, could I kill someone? He's like, yeah, but why are you in prison? I'm like, I just told you. And he's like, no, you're not in here because you killed someone. You need to dig, dig deeper and go back and go back and go back and find out exactly what it is that led to you killing this person. I didn't understand my emotions when I was younger and didn't really care about my emotions. I remember figuring out that my greed of money is what led me to be in that lifestyle anyway, which led to me killing. So therefore I had to figure out this, this greed that I have in me and whatnot, which comes from having the things I needed when I was younger but not having everything I wanted. But I had to learn that, you know, greed is not necessarily a bad thing, but it depends on how, depending on if you control it or if it controls you. So I had to kind of figure out what I was going to do with that. And, you know, over time or whatnot, the greed pretty much went away when I understood that in life you have to work for the things that you want. Nothing's going to come overnight. 
It's going to take some time. You got to be patient and let everything work out the way it's supposed to work out. As long as you're putting in the work, then eventually you'll get what you're supposed to get. For his part, Thrawn understands his struggles with his emotions to be part of the masculine world in which he was raised. We teach our, our boys at a young age to not address these emotions or whatnot, right? So when things are happening, like we, we teach them as a society to thrive on violence, even if it's the war movies, even if it's whatever the case may be, like, you know, be dominant. But the trauma for me, like, I didn't know or didn't put a name on it. Like, if you don't know that you're actually traumatized, you're not understanding the trauma like that. Like, growing up in a gang world, seeing the things I've seen, the shootings, the domestic violence, watching my mom get beat, these are not normal things for fighting a grown man. That's not normal. So, like, trying to understand that trauma, it has gave me a little understanding of myself. Like, you know, you... You messed up a little bit, but in the sense that you've been through things, that's not necessarily your fault. Theron shared his thoughts about processing emotions in class one morning. I have a hard time being in, in tune with my emotions, but I also understand that it wasn't healthy because that's I'm I'm so closed off based on that. You know what I mean? Because I have this this I don't I don't gotta show no emotions, but I, I don't know how to express my emotions because of, as, a, as a result of being tough, being that. And I don't think that was healthy, you know, and I think that deprived me to sharing the, the good sides of me. How much better is your life now that you can show those emotions, not just to, in this settings, but in general? How much more wholesome is your life? It's better. And I'm still struggling with it today. Like it's even with the, con the awareness of trying to being expressive, it's still that part that you spent most of your life cutting it off and it's like you're trying to re-teach yourself on how they really feel and it, it is difficult I mean but the progress that I have made it is it's, it's a world difference because I'm not bottling everything up there's moments and there's people that I'm, I'm not afraid to actually speak to now this setting is hard obviously but this is part of the challenge right to try to get that healthy mindset that healthy ability of what it is to be a man Of course, it is not enough just to understand one's emotions. It is also necessary to control them. Here's one of the students, Tim, describing how he struggles with this. Violence has been a part of my life for a very long time, big and small. These days, anybody knows me from the previous couple decades of my life as opposed to the last few years, I'm almost unrecognizable. These days, most of the time, I just avoid it. But when a complication comes and takes place, I always... Uh, I always try to have the conversation with myself beforehand of what I'm going to say. People see me talking to myself, walking laps. <laughs> but what I'm doing is I know I'm about to walk into a situation where part of me just wants to go knock the dude's head off. And that's what the old part of me, we wouldn't even have gotten to the point of having a conversation. It wouldn't have been an option. To control emotions can therefore be a means by which violence is reduced. It can also help one to pursue a wider range of goals beyond just ensuring one's status on the prison yard. When I look back on like my decision making, I don't really see it as decision making. Like now I see like a distinct difference in when I'm making a decision now, like what's happening in my brain and what was happening then, 
you know, there I can clearly see a distinct difference, and that's why I equate it so much to right. brain development. So elaborate more on that difference. Uh, I say all the time, I don't think I actually made a decision in my life until I was 26, <laughs> you know. Everything just kind of happened. It was everything was just going with the flow. Like I didn't really make a choice and weigh all my options and the consequences of those options. Cameron pushes this idea in a class that he helps moderate. One where his peers are a challenge to broaden their perspective about what it means to have a healthy approach to masculinity. We're dealing with uh, a lot of guys that are still very stuck in the toxic masculinity and gang life and, and everything else. So we're not saying you're wrong. We're saying what, you know, what, what are, where are these cracks? You know, what, what uh, we, I, I think of it as like the first step on, on a paradigm shift is just questioning these things. And um, so when we say, what kind of man do you want to be? Often there's some, um, some disparity between what kind of man they want to be and then what kind of life they have been living up to this point. And your goal is to stay out of prison and be a good father, whereas hanging out on the corner with a pistol fit into that, you know. So just getting them to start those initial questions. Theron sees things in a similar fashion. I always say the saying, we can't be both a great gangster and a great man. And the reason why is because they conflict each other. So the gangster, his loyalty is to the objectives of the gang versus the man's loyalty is to the objective of his families. So at some point, there will be an intersection that conflicts. You will be a horrible gangster to not go ride with your homeboys if at a time where someone, your homeboys got shot. But you'll be a horrible dad, a horrible man to miss your kid's game because you're going to ride for your street. No matter how painful these reconsiderations of manhood might be, there is a sense that the pain can be worth it. Examining them things is like legitimately painful, you know? Like, um, you know, the fact that I feel like I'm a good person, but I did all these bad things, you know, and trying to meld the two is uh, it's a hard thing to go through. And I, my paradigm shift, I, just like that's it was painful. <laughs> it was literally painful having those thoughts. It is painful when we have to examine the fact that we've hurt people. But the flip side is that when we do examine it and do allow it to process, then there's those levels of hope. You know what I mean? You know, the hope of the fact that we are healing. The hope that our pain and our suffering have some meaning to it. And as long as there's hope to find meaning in it, then there's hope to really process the pain. And of course, it is not like prisoners never find a way to express their more compassionate side. I mean, we can just look in the visitor room you know, we can go to, we can see guys go to the yard, they got kids, and, you know, reputable guys, and, you know, tough, stern, serious individuals, they go in the visiting room, and they got these little kids, they're changed, because they're vulnerable in that very moment, they're vulnerable, they're being daddy, they're being uncle, they're being the man, and versus the gangster on the yard, the hardened convict, 
because they allow themselves vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So their violence on the yard, their violence in the past or whatnot is irrelevant to, to their true manhood, which is trying to be the, the head of their, their household and teaching real values. Because we, I think we all can agree that we don't teach our kids the values of prison. Mm -hmm. Very rare would you see a gang member teaches kids the gang values. No one with sense does that. You know, we're going to teach them the real values of what it is to be a man, taking care of the family. You know, so to me, that's that's true manhood. But that true manhood comes in accepting and being responsible and acknowledging that you can be vulnerable. So personal change in prison means bucking the macho codes that say emotional vulnerability is a sign of weakness. To gain control of one's behavior well enough to change means you have to gain control of your emotions. Theron described how this process is key to resolving the disputes into which he is drawn so that he stays out of the violence that he once embraced. We have a tendency as prisoners to say, oh, he made me do this, right? right you know? Yeah, I didn't have no choice right. to do this, right? And I've been challenging that. Like, did he really make me do this? Or No, I had a choice. You know, like, I might not like the, the, the options that I, that I have, but I do have a choice. I have the power of free will. You know, and like, he didn't make me feel upset. I chose to be upset based on this other's actions. You know what I mean? So it's, it's playing with that language to where it's like, how much, if he can make me feel the way that I feel, then how much power do I have for myself? Right. You know, how much power? So I think he want me to think like this, like, or he think I'm a sucker. Like, it's, you can think however you want to think. Right. I think I'm a good person. I think I got a cool smile. I think I got a lot of positive energy. So regardless of what he thinks, it doesn't reflect who I really am or what I really believe in Zod. Like, I have that power. That power that Thrawn mentions not only enables those trying to atone to be able to control their tendencies to violence, it also makes it possible for them to become positive forces in the lives of others. When I uh, realized that I was uh, creating negativity and I was bringing out the worst in everyone around me, that was such a terrible feeling, you know, and why that was a terrible feeling, I don't know, but it was terrible and I just had to get rid of it. <laughs> and what's the opposite of bringing out the worst in everyone around me? Bring out the best. How Atonement Translates into Helping Others. That's next time on Making Amends. Making Amends is written and produced by me, Steve Herbert. Our production crew includes Jesse Beckett Herbert, Tyler Bonilla, Emma Embleton, and Daniel Gunther. Our website and marketing crew includes Nadra Fredge, Kate Borelli, and Liz Gardner. Music by Jesse Beckett Herbert and Tony Lefebvre. Our theme song was recorded at the Oregon State Penitentiary with Austin Clark, Chad Hamlin, and Mitch Lewis. Recording assistance at the penitentiary provided by Chad Hamlin. Learn more at our website, makingamendspodcast.com. Please spread the word about this podcast and provide us a rating and a review. See you next time.